Hello, my name is Dr. Helen Durham and I am Director of International Law and Policy at the International Committee of the Red Cross, headquarters in Geneva. Today I'm going to have a discussion with you and engage with you on the topic of the relevance and usefulness of international humanitarian law, the laws of war today. Now what I want to do is start by quickly looking at what is international humanitarian law, what particular role does the International Committee of the Red Cross have or play in this area of international law, what are the current and relevant trends that are being developed on the battlefield that this area of law needs to reflect upon, how can we make this area of law stronger, is it still relevant, is it something worth putting energy into and finally what does the future hold for the laws of war. But let's start by looking at what international humanitarian law aims to do. Well, in a very general sense, it aims to reduce suffering during times of armed conflict. And in many ways, this idea is both incredibly aspirational, but also, as you could imagine, extremely difficult. Now, international humanitarian law with this aim is, of course, an area or a part of public international law, we find it in treaties and also in customary law. And the way it reduces suffering during times of armed conflict is by developing a very careful balance. On one hand, it has to deal with the principle of military necessity. And on the other hand, it has to find a way to balance that principle with the principle of humanity. So in many ways, international humanitarian law is a very pragmatic area of law because it constantly has to find a space between these two concepts. You find them in the Geneva Conventions of 1949 and their additional protocols of 1977. And what this uh, normative framework does is firstly create categories of protected persons. So specific individuals, civilians, but also combatants that are no longer engaged in the fighting are to be protected. But it also adds on an element of giving limitations around the methods and the means of warfare. And I'll come back to that in a minute, but it relates to the choices of weapons that can be used on the battlefield. I think one of the challenges that people really struggle with in international humanitarian law is, as I mentioned before, it reduces suffering, but it doesn't eradicate suffering. And I think today there is a little bit of confusion out there between two areas of law and their interface. So I just wanted to deviate for a moment and talk about, in Latin, jus ad balem, which is the right of states to resort to force and go to war, and the laws relating to jus in bello, which is international humanitarian law. And it explains why this idea of reducing the suffering rather than eradicating, of choosing certain categories of people to be protected, prisoners of war, civilians, and limiting certain weapons, but not all. So we all know that the UN Charter is uh, certainly many years ago deemed it illegal for states to resort to threat or use of force. And we find that in Article 2.4. Um, of course, there are exceptions. We've got Chapter 7 and the use of force in that circumstance. And then, of course, Article 51 relating to the right of self-defense. But overall, we see the UN Charter is the body of law and the place where the resort to force by states is regulated and discussed. And that's a highly political issue. On the other hand, we have international humanitarian law. 
and the International Committee of the Red Cross are the guardians of this area of law. And what that does is focus on the regulations and the limitations during armed conflict. It says, in essence, there are certain categories of people that can be, uh, have lethal force used against them, combatants upon combatants, with impunity. Uh, it says, for example, international humanitarian law, that individuals, certain individuals can be detained for an indefinite period of time uh, as prisoners of war without having necessary committed crimes. So it's a very specific area of international law, lex specialist, that has a strong relationship with other existing human rights, but has this particular nature. And I think this idea about understanding the laws that regulate the resort to force and the laws that regulate during armed conflict is critical today because I think if we only focus on crimes of aggression, we can forget that international humanitarian law, as I said at the start, applies to all parties in a conflict, both to civilians and combatants. The limitations that we find, and I'll spend a moment running through some of these, are for both parties, both sides. It totally eradicates this idea of just war theory, which is whatever one does is justified because of a, an aim that is uh, somehow pure. In fact, international humanitarian law reminds us that everyone has a minimum of human dignity, even during times of armed conflict. So let's have a look for a moment about some of the key principles we find in this area. The first one, and it is a foundational one to this area of law, is the principle of distinction. It requires that during the conduct of hostility, individuals must be protected if they are civilians and you must distinguish between civilians and civilian objects and military objectives. It's legal to target military objectives, but civilians and civilian objects are not to be targeted. We also see though, layered on top of that, the principle of proportionality. And that is a complex principle. Uh, we find it in Rule four, uh, 14 of the Customary Law Study of the ICRC. But this uh, basically advocates that whilst there may be incidental loss of life during hostilities, the loss must not be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage. So if we walk through it, we have the principle of distinction. You must distinguish your uh, use of force against different categories of people and objects. But then you've got on top of that the principle of proportionality. And then coming not far after that, I think another fundamental principle is the principle of precautions in attack. And you find this in 50, Article 57 of Additional Protocol 1 and it's Rule 15 in the Customary Law Study. Now this requires that parties to a conflict must take all feasible precautions in their choice and their methods of warfare. And this relates to the choice of weapons. If you have, for example, a very heavily populated area with a lot of civilians, there is a requirement under international humanitarian law to think very seriously about the range of weapon systems and the methods that you will use. So there's a few of the key principles that you find in this attempt to balance between these two competing ideas. The Geneva Conventions themselves, which really came out of the flurry of activity we saw on the international legal landscape after World War II. Uh, so the Geneva Conventions of 1949 are universally ratified. They are much older. We had early conventions uh, at the same time that the International Committee of the Red Cross was created back in the uh, late to mid 1800s. 
that you really saw a rising of the four conventions coming out of the experiences of World War II. Um, so universally ratified means that all states, as we know, have at least agreed to the principles and, and, and signed up or implemented in the way that they different legal processes require that they uh, understand the uh, limits. There are limits in armed conflict. We also have additional protocol one, which further talks about the requirements uh, that to be used during times of armed conflict in the area of conduct of hostilities. And that's ratified by 174 states. So that too has a lot of uh, uh, international agreement. And then additional protocol two, that deals with non-international armed conflict, and I'll come to that in a minute, which has 169 states who are ratified up. So we've got the key principles, we've got the idea, we've got the treaty, we've got the idea that there's also customary law in that area. But for the last many years, what has been interesting to see is that there hasn't been developments in the substantive body of international humanitarian law. What we've seen more is specific weapons being regulated coming out of the principles found in the Geneva Conventions and their additional protocols. So if we look at, uh, particularly in the, in the 90s, a range of treaties related to the prohibition or reduction of the use of certain weapons. We saw the Anti-Personnel Landmine Treaty. We saw the regulations around cluster munitions, blinding laser weapons, the Arms Trade Treaty. Um, and more recently, we've seen, of course, the creation of a new treaty uh, relating to the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Now, many of these treaties, which are part of the wider international humanitarian law framework, come from principles found in the old and existing law. For example, in Additional Protocol 1, Article 35 requires that it's illegal to use weapons that cause superfluous injury and unnecessary suffering. Now, often you have to sit with that for a moment because the opposite to unnecessary suffering is clearly necessary suffering, so it brings back that idea of the pragmatic nature of this law. However, having said that, it's being deemed that many of the weapons today that are either illegal or a required reduction in their use are very much because they do not distinguish between a civilian and a combatant, so that principle again found in IHL, and also create unnecessary suffering, um, that suffering that is not required in the aim of the military objective. So I think it's really important to look at the whole framework as a network of different obligations that as humans develop more and more ways to look at uh, how to engage in use of force and conflict, there are these principles to come back to, touchstones to come back to, so to speak, to look at how we move it forward. Of course, international humanitarian law also deals with issues such as cultural property, uh, the protection of children, the prohibition of using children as soldiers or non-voluntary recruitment, the prohibition of sexual violence, uh, the requirement for families to know the fate of their missing. So we do a lot of work as the International Committee of the Red Cross through the Geneva Conventions and their protocols on tracing family members. One of the really long-lasting and terrible suffering that families have during and even post-conflict for many, many years is not knowing the fate of their loved ones. And through certain regulations that we find articulated in both the Geneva Conventions and their additional protocols, there's the obligation for the Red Cross to do this work. I thought perhaps before I move on to some of the current challenges that this body of law has and some of the 
thematic issues that I believe are really interesting, I wanted to take a moment and talk about the specific role of the ICRC in international humanitarian law. Now, of course, any international humanitarian law belongs to states. States have the responsibility to both negotiate it, to decide whether they want to sign up to it, and then to implement it, of course, once it's uh, in existence. But the special role of the ICRC goes way back to our founder, Henry Dunant, uh, back in the uh, mid-1800s, where he identified the need to codify in a one place the laws that reduce suffering during times of armed conflict. And it was very interesting to see that throughout history, sadly, humanity has always had times to be at war with each other, but you've always seen, if it's in bilateral agreements or sort of cultural principles, references to having some sort of limitations to the armed conflict itself. However, it wasn't until there was this idea to bring it together, use the Red Cross emblem, which is the inverse of the Swiss flag, um, to have a body, an international organisation, an independent, impartial, neutral organisation that had some sort of guardianship over this area of international law, and that's the role of the ICRC. We as an institution are specifically mentioned in the Geneva Conventions. Common Article 3, which deals with non-international armed conflicts, talks about the role of an impartial humanitarian organisation, such as the ICRC, offering its services to the parties in the conflict. And then you see other elements in the Geneva Conventions, such as Article 126 of the Third Geneva Convention, which deals with prisoners of war, which gives the right of the ICRC to visit people detained as prisoners of war, to do the family tracing, as mentioned before, and to ensure they don't disappear. And thirdly, to look at the conditions of which individuals who are no longer engaged in the fighting uh, are kept, that they need to have humane treatment. So that, that, that principle is also replicated in the fourth Geneva Convention dealing with civilian detainees. So as the ICRC, we have a particular role to play with international humanitarian law, both in the action, the work that we do in the field, as well as our role in reflecting about ideas of where international humanitarian law needs to move forward and making proposals to states in this regard. So that's the role of the ICRC. So I feel we've covered the basics of what are we talking about, the role of the ICRC, and perhaps what I wanted to talk about for a moment was looking at some of the updated challenges. As I mentioned before, there's a lot of questions. Is this area of international law relevant today? And is it useful today? So some of the challenges we see that we're working very hard on as the ICRC include where the conflicts are nowadays fought, the type of conflicts, the length, the temporal scope of conflict, and how conflict is fought. Because once again, to be really relevant, to reduce the gap between the rhetoric and the reality, we need to be able to be very aware of what's happening on the battlefield today. Now, the first area I wanted to highlight relates to the increased urbanization of armed conflict. We know that in 2010, approximately 51% of the world's population lived in urban areas. In 2020, that was up to 56%. And it's estimated today that by 2050, up to 68 to 70% of the world's population will be living in urban areas. So we have an increasingly urbanized world. Well, sadly, that paradigm also applies with armed conflict. Increasingly, we see across the globe today, the conflict is fought in heavily urbanized areas which puts a lot of pressure on the traditional framework of international humanitarian law. 
urban warfare provides a range of humanitarian consequences that are complex, that are difficult, and much of that is to do with the interconnected infrastructure that we find in urban environments. The destruction of essential services, whether it be water, sanitation, hospitals or schools, when particularly heavy weapons that have a high impact, so-called explosive weapons in populated areas, are used in urban warfare are of great concern. And once we have a destruction, for example, of an essential service such as sanitation, we know that the impact on the humanitarian livelihoods and life of the civilian population is going to be very high in the short, medium and even long term. A lot of the work that ICRC does in a practical way globally today relates to providing water sanitation services to, for to vulnerable populations that have had that destroyed during combat. So I think this idea of urbanization of conflict is something that the international humanitarian law needs to really work into and we're working very hard on this issue, not just the weapons but also the methods and means. Another area that I wanted to flag, as mentioned before, is the relation to the temporal scope of conflict. We know today that conflicts are more, they're more protracted. And when a conflict becomes protracted, you of course start having a different interface between the normative framework related to international humanitarian law and that related to human rights. It's this sense of the emergency interface with the development. If we have conflicts, for example, the ICRC has been in a place like Afghanistan for over 30 years. And even when the conflict finishes, the implications on the civilian population, the destruction, as mentioned before, of the infrastructure, of the lack of hospitals, of schools, uh, has reverberating effects and goes on. So the nature of protracted conflict is something that international humanitarian law has to look at and take a temporal view on some of the key principles. Finally, as I mentioned before, we've got the issue about the digitalization of the battlefield, the use of new technologies in times of war. Now, of course, new technologies are a part of our life at the moment. We see increasingly uh, the role they play in often very positive ways. And certainly as a humanitarian organization, the ICRC acknowledges the benefits of new technologies. But I think when it comes to the weaponization of uh, some new technologies, we have to think very carefully about the existing normative framework. For example, the impact of cyber attacks, the humanitarian consequences of non-kinetic attacks can be devastating on the civilian population. And we know, for example, that it's hospitals and other medical infrastructure that are often very vulnerable to cyber attacks. And I think uh, one of the big issues the ICRC has been raising is the applicability of international humanitarian law and those principles I mentioned at the start, distinction, proportionality, precautions in attack, those principles applied to non-kinetic attacks. Another area of new technologies is autonomous weapon systems. And I think that involves both uh, the application uh, of international humanitarian law, but the challenges of attribution. If it's a, a machine, if it's an algorithm, who has the uh, ultimate responsibility in relation to the taking of life or the uh, creation of uh, some sort of negative impact? But also one of the concerns ICRC has, and we've been raising our voices on this, is that in relation to autonomous weapon systems, the unpredictability of the attack and the capacity for the killing of 
humans. So anti-personnel attacks with autonomous weapon systems greatly concern us as a humanitarian organization, both in the normative legal sense, but also in the ethical sense. How far do we want to delegate out the use of lethal force to algorithms? So the ICRC has been advocating that there is a requirement for new laws as it relates to autonomous weapon systems. But we also need to think about the increased use of outer space as a domain of warfare and some of the once again consequences on human uh, infrastructure that is located in space if this is, turns into a battlefield. And finally we've got some issues around technology whether it be uh, nanotechnology, whether it be human enhancement, but a whole range of issues going forward as an institution, I think globally, we need to think of very carefully as we look at the digitalization of warfare. And I think a final area that really must be looked at today is the environment and armed conflict. We know that up to 80% of conflicts today take place in um, situations where biodiversity is very fragile. We know that in the last 40 years, up to 40% of non-international armed conflicts have been fought and instigated in relation to the requirement of natural resources. So we see the environment as both being affected by armed conflict, but also a reason for armed conflict. And recently the ICRC updated its environmental guidelines on international humanitarian law obligations that you find in current IHL and are currently engaging with armed forces and political authorities to remind them of the 32 rules found in international humanitarian law related to the area of armed conflict and the environment. So I think looking at urbanization of conflict, protracted conflict, new technologies and conflict, as well as the environment are key areas going forward that will keep international humanitarian law relevant and useful. Finally, I wanted to turn to the question that is often asked of international humanitarian law as it relates to its actual um, application. Many people say international humanitarian law, the laws of war, it never works. We see on the television, we see in the newspaper all the time the laws of war have broken. And I find it very interesting that unlike other areas and legal frameworks such as human rights law or refugee law or even environmental law, there is a lot of heavy expectations upon international humanitarian law to always revolutionize human behavior. It is of course an area of law better known for its breaches than its adherences to. And I think that makes a lot of sense because much of the work that international humanitarian law tries to do is in the prevention. It's counterfactual. It is to try and prove what didn't happen. Did a military commander make a bit different decision about targeting? Were prisoners of war in one instance treated well? So I think international humanitarian law has a long way to go to demonstrate its added value and its impact. As an ICRC delegate when I was younger, I was able to see over and over again the way that international humanitarian law did make a difference to people's lives. But I think we need to be better in the humanitarian and legal sector in explaining the impact and the importance that if this law is broken, when we do see instances of disproportionate use of force, of civilians being attacked, of prisoners of war not being treated properly, the issue isn't to question the relevance and the usefulness of the law. We don't do that when we see breaches of human rights law. What we need to do is think of better, more creative and more persuasive ways of making sure that international humanitarian law is known 
and respected. And I think part of that is doing more to educate the general public about the fact that even wars have limits. Certainly over the last few years, the ICRC has been doing more and more research to look at what is the psychological mind frame of those who are engaged in armed conflict, whether it be the military forces and combatants or non-state armed groups. What is it that actually encourages them to actually hold back and reduce their uh, use and make sure that they make limits on how they conduct hostilities. And we did a big study a number of years ago called Roots of Restraint in War, which looked psychologically that changing the behavior of those engaged in armed conflict is about the normative framework, the fear of prosecution, because in the last two decades, there's been a lot of work done at an international level with the UN and others to create the two ad hoc tribunals for the former Yugoslavia in Rwanda, pursuant to Security Council resolutions, the International Criminal Court, a treaty body, and a myriad of hybrid war crimes tribunals. There is an element that changes behavior with the fear of prosecution. But also what our study found in interviewing thousands of non-state armed groups and members of the armed forces is it's not just that fear and not just the top down, but it's also the culture within military or non-state armed groups. It's the peer-to-peer -peer impact that is important as well. So we need to keep developing the laws, but we also need to keep finding ways to create a culture within the military and non-state armed groups of understanding the benefits that they have in following international humanitarian law. So going forward, I think that the laws of war needs to look more heavily at issues such as gender perspectives of international humanitarian law, the way that armed conflict impacts differently upon men and women, boys and girls, and how can the current normative framework capture that and really make sure that the responses are appropriate. We need to look at issues such as counter-terrorism legislation, which in many ways reduces the humanitarian space for neutral, impartial humanitarian action to move forward and to make sure it can provide the necessary assisted needed, assistance needed. I think we also, as an international community, need to start looking at the, the faith and the trust in a rules-based system and the fact that when we see it broken, it means we need to work harder rather than lose faith. So in summary, the Geneva Conventions, with over 470 articles, are a very profound reminder that what unites us as people is deeper and more profound than what divides us. And this idea of even wars have limits is a very precious one.